Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Over the past several weeks, I've been reading a lot of conflicting information about women leaders. For starters, it seems many of us still think men are better at leadership. To back that up, a 2016 survey found that women make up only 19% of the top executive officer positions in major organizations. And according to a new book by Stanford professor Leah Weiss, for every 100 women promoted into management positions, 130 men get promotions too. But then there's research from Ernst & Young and the Peterson Institute for International Economics that studied nearly 22,000 global companies in 91 countries. And they found that by having just 30% of women in leadership positions or in the C-suite, net profit jumps by an incremental 6%. And in a very interesting choice of words, the director of the study said, and I'll quote, the evidence on women in the C-suite is robust. No matter how we torture the data, we get the same result. Women are associated with higher profitability. So today, the focus of our show is going to be on gaining a greater understanding of women leaders. And before I go any further, a quick shout out to all the men listening in. Please do not go anywhere because I promise this is going to be invaluable for you as well. I promise. And for the next hour, we're going to dig into some of the key questions that I think you might be wondering about too. Like, why aren't there more women leaders? And what are some of the key differences between how men lead and how women lead? And what are some of the reasons why women CEOs tend to drive greater financial performance? And finally, what can women leaders teach their male counterparts and what can women leaders learn from their male counterparts? So I'd like to now introduce you to the expert on this mission and today's podcast guest, Sally Helgeson. Three decades ago, Sally wrote a groundbreaking book called The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership. And she's been writing about and researching women leaders ever since. In fact, she was a pioneer back then when she called for greater inclusivity in workplaces around the globe, and Forbes has called her the world's top women's leadership expert. And what makes Sally's perspective all the more compelling for our discussion today is that she co-wrote the new bestseller, How Women Rise, with legendary executive coach Marshall Goldsmith. And Marshall might be the most informed expert on male leaders, noting that 90% of his clients over four decades were men. Now, I've just finished reading the book, and I'm very excited to now speak to its sage co-author, joining us from her home in Chatham, New York. Please welcome to the podcast, Sally Helgeson. Thank you, Mark. It's wonderful to be here. The first thing I want to do, Sally, is to ask you if you could start off by telling us what influenced you to devote your career to helping women become successful leaders? You know, Mark, it really came from my own experience. Uh, through the 80s, I was working in corporate communications. I was one of the very few women that I saw, and I wanted to learn how I could be more effective. So I started reading a lot of books, both academic and popular, that had been published purporting to tell women what they needed to know to succeed in the workplace. And I learned a lot, but I found that every single one of them operated from the presumption that women had nothing to bring. They only needed to change and adapt. You know, it was kind of if it moves, salute it, leave your values at home, you know, wear a bow tie, et cetera, et cetera. That was that era. And it contradicted my experience because I saw a lot of women who had a lot to contribute but were not necessarily in a position or heard sufficiently to be able to do so. So I thought, you know, let me take a look at what women's leadership at its best looks like so that I can help people understand what women have to bring. And the result of that was a book, The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, which was the first to focus on what women had to contribute rather than how they needed to change and adapt. Well, you know, noting some of the statistics that I mentioned in your introduction, I'm wondering if you think we, I mean, you sort of implied it just a second ago that do we have biases toward women leaders even today? And the big question is, why aren't boardrooms, C-suites, and really all management ranks more proportionally represented today? Well, first of all, I do want to emphasize that it's not like it was in the 80s anymore. We have a different model of uh, leadership that good leaders aspire to today. And women have made 
slow, often discouragingly slow, but very steady progress. I've looked at this over 30 years, so I can see movement. You ask why there are now more women in boardrooms, C-suite, and in management ranks. I would say that within general management ranks, women are pretty proportionally represented. It's more, the issues are more in boardrooms and C-suites. In boardrooms, it tends to be, I think, in my experience, often very narrowly conceived criteria. I will get calls from people, oh, we're looking for a woman, ex-board, you know, and I'll, I'll think about it seriously. I'll suggest a couple people. And then somebody will say, oh, she only ran a P&L of 35 million and we need someone who did 60 million. And so, you know, because of this very narrow criteria, they, they won't look broadly at what the person might bring. So I, I see that happening a lot in boardrooms. And I think the old boys factor and the you know comfort factor is very alive in many boardrooms. As far as C-suites go, the problem tends to be the attrition of women below that most senior level. There are plenty of women populating the ranks in organizations, but it's sort of that point where you go from vice president to senior vice president, where you get the attrition. And in my experience, having interviewed hundreds of women who have moved out of those positions or even taken themselves out of the race for C-suite, they usually tend to feel at a certain point discouraged and disengaged by the the kind of culture that they find. And by attitudes, I prefer to say attitudes rather than biases, that still persists. So I, I hear women say, I decided it just wasn't worth it. And worth it to me indicates that it's a question of value and that you had to make too many adjustments in your own values and underplay your own strengths too much to be able to aspire to some of those positions. So I think that's become a problem and that organizations are just still struggling to do a good job of fully engaging women and women's talents at the most senior levels. Dig into those two words that you used, culture and attitudes. So you're saying yeah. we don't have really a bias, but we do have attitudes. So I'm curious as to what you mean by that. What do uh, women, what, what are women finding, what are they repelled by? What women are repelled by is often a real failure of male leaders to recognize what they have to contribute. I'll give you an example. One of the things that fascinated me a number of years ago is a number of studies I saw that showed that while women were very valued for some specific skills that I enumerated, going back to the female advantage, they're bias for and comfort with direct communication, skill in building relationships, ability to put themselves at the center of things uh, and move in and out of positions of leadership and support, ability to motivate other people. While those things were highly valued, senior leaders tended to see women as lacking in vision, that is big picture, strategic level thinking. Uh, And that really fascinated me. So I did some research on it. And what I found is that women often articulate what they notice. And women often notice more. They have a more broad spectrum way of noticing. So it's less laser-like. And when they try to bring some of that information, which can be very, very valuable to their organizations, they get a reaction, well, that's beside the point, or we need to get right to the bottom line. You know, So I think that there's a capacity for bringing in fresh information that can be very valuable that women bring that is indeed a key and important part of what women's vision is, but that mainstream organizations often don't know what to do with it or even how to hear it. Well, you know, coincidentally, just this week, I happened to see some sort of a study that implied that it didn't imply it, it stated it, that women leaders tend to succeed when they subordinate their womanhood, if you will. And it didn't make it entirely clear that successful leaders or or even suggest that women leaders had to be more masculine, if you will. It was just that they didn't play the hand by saying, you know, from my point of view as a woman, etc., And so I wonder if we 
diminish women in some way in terms of their leadership and diminish them in the sense that they can't bring their whole full authentic selves to the role in order to be successful as a senior leader in an organization. I think there's definitely an element of that. And, you know, part of the conundrum is this emphasis that we have in organizations now on the need to bring your authentic self to work. Why do we have that emphasis? Because people have to work so hard and people have to bring so much creativity and so much mental energy and skill to what they're doing that they really need to feel as if they're you know, what is best in them is fully engaged. And women often don't feel that what is best in them is fully recognized. And there's a almost a, a language barrier in presenting some of that. And uh, the upshot is, you know, you, you do have, and I'm not, I don't want to overplay the fact that there are not more women in C-suite positions because they're derailing themselves or taking themselves off of that. No, there are also lots of decisions made. We want a leader that looks like X, Y, or Z, and she doesn't look like that. So those decisions are still being made. But there's a, you know, there's a, I would say a greater potential for disengagement in organizations that culturally and structurally are not designed to recognize what women's greatest strengths are. And that really has been, you know, that has been my mission and my quest for the last 30 years is to help women to recognize, articulate, and act on their greatest strengths and to help organizations develop inclusive cultures in which women and other diverse people with great talent can better thrive. So you kind of went where I wanted you to go, which is the mm -hmm. advice piece of this. So, you know, I'm a man, I've managed women many times in my career very successfully. And yet, I did see within, you know, particularly financial services where I spent most of my career, that there was this sort of, I don't know if you want to call it a ceiling, but there were fewer people in senior leadership roles in women in financial services. And so I guess my question would be, what have you gleaned in all of your years of research? What's the advice that you would give to somebody like me, a, a senior leader, a man who is trying to cultivate and win the engagement of women and even help them ascend higher in, in the organization? What are some of the practices that you would suggest? Well, I think that, first of all, it's really important that men learn to listen better to women. And I, it's funny, I just got a a wonderful article across my desk about an hour ago by a, a young guy who was in financial services for many years and now is a, a writer, speaker, consultant. And he was writing about how it's often difficult for him as a man to be in a situation because he finds women use so many more words and so many more explanations and give, you know, give a lot more background and that it can test his tolerance. And I have watched that kind of interaction often since I began doing the work that I've been doing with women leaders. And what I think is important is, first of all, for men to learn to be better and more patient listeners when women are talking, but also the converse side of that is for women to think about ways in which to be more concise when they're presenting an idea or a thought to leadership. So it's kind of a coming together. But I, I also think that one of the things that's really important for men is to, especially men who are in leadership positions where, you know, like every light turned green for them as they went through their career. And I've worked with certainly some of these men from a coaching and consulting perspective, is to try to think back to a time when you felt that what you had to contribute or what someone you loved had to contribute wasn't really recognized or seen and they couldn't make an impact. And I, I remember having this conversation with a fellow who quite early on had become the managing partner, you know, one of AMLA's probably top 15 law firms in the U.S., and saying that to him because he was saying, you know, I don't know what all the problems are here, you know, why she feels like blah. And it landed very hard on him. And he said, you know, I have a son who's on the spectrum of autism. He said, and it breaks my heart because I know 
what he's thinking and what he's capable of communicating. And when I'm with him in public and I see people that do not, it frustrates me enormously. So I think it's very helpful for men to put themselves in a situation where they have felt vulnerable, misunderstood, or been with someone they care profoundly about who's been misunderstood, so that they can begin to get a sense of what that can feel like. And then that's going to make them a better listener in terms of what they're hearing and what they what they can expect. I think that's great advice because when you personalize something, it leads to greater empathy and an understanding and that should change behavior. So thank you. Sure. I want to transition to your book. A thesis is that every leader on the planet really has self-limiting behaviors for the simple reason that we're all human beings. (laughs) Exactly. But you also believe that the kinds of habits that limit women leaders tend to be different from the ones that limit men. So Can you tell us some of the reasons why we're not all struggling with the same challenges? Exactly. You know, this goes back to the genesis of my new book, co-authored with Marshall Goldsmith, How Women Rise. Marshall had written a book about 10 years ago called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And the subtitle was The Behaviors That Get in the Way of Successful People. And in his almost 40 years as an executive coach, he had had occasion to notice what kind of self-limiting behaviors held some of the very successful probably 85 to 90 percent men that he had worked with back. And I found the book wonderful, but in doing a lot of leadership workshops for women all over the world, it was also clear to me that some of the behaviors in that book were not a particular problem for women, such as, for example, one of his big things that helped his people back, he said, was you need to learn to apologize. Well, there are many women who can't open a door without saying, I'm sorry, (laughs) Uh, you know, apologizing for hanging their coat up. So that doesn't necessarily apply. And, you know, talking too much about, you know, how great you are. He has behaviors like that, that I think he sees in, you know, with some of his very successful senior executive populations. But I rarely, rarely see with women. And conversely, what I would see is that there were certain behaviors over and over and over that were getting in women's way as they sought to rise. Because the real, I think, brilliant insight of Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, is that the same behaviors that can help you early in your career can begin to get in your way as you move to a higher level. This is what I saw with women. So I went to Marshall and said, you know, look, let's collaborate here. I think some of the behaviors that impact women are getting left out here. Some of the behaviors he had were very gender neutral, but there's important stuff being left on the table here. So let's let's collaborate and let's look at the behaviors that are most likely to get in women's ways as they seek to rise. So I think you're clairvoyant because the question Mm -hmm. that I want to ask you now really is, is that, and I have your book sitting in front of me. It has an inscription from Marshall because he gave it to me personally. And he said, let's help women grow as leaders. And so even though he spent most of his career, you know, supporting coaching men, I think he has the same ambitions, which is that we should all be come better and be given great opportunities. But you list in the book what you call the dozen bad habits that consistently limit women leaders. So can you maybe pick the top three of those 12s? What do you see as being the most consistent limiters for women as they ascend in their careers? What I see as being most consistent, and I see this both in my experience that shaped the book, but also the fact that I've done dozens of programs for women since the book came out. And so I asked my audience, you know, how many of you resonate with this? How many of you resonate with that? The three that are, I would say are most consistent are the behavior number two, which is expecting others to spontaneously notice and value what you contribute without your having to draw attention to it. Overvaluing expertise, that is believing that if you do the best possible job at what your job is now, that that will automatically lead you 
to the next job and can often lead women to underinvest in building networks of support and certainly to underinvest in building the visibility that they need to move on. And also perfectionism, which is highly problematic. One of the interesting pieces of research we found when doing the book was a big uh, coaching survey which showed that women tend to be rewarded in their careers for being precise and correct, whereas men tend to be rewarded for being risk-taking and having a bold vision. And so it's understandable that women would emphasize precision and correctness in building their careers, whereas The problem with that is as you get to a more senior level, being comfortable with taking risk and having a big picture vision of what you're trying to achieve become more viewed as potential senior leader qualities so that you can keep yourself caught in this precision and correctness. Perfectionism, which, you know, I think, I mean, girls are encouraged to be, you know, the good little girl and boys are encouraged, you know, there's more latitude for this sort of cute, naughty little boy than certainly there is for the girls. So I think women grow up often feeling that they will be rewarded for being perfect, but it creates a lot of stress at higher levels, both for the person who's trying to be perfect, but for the people around them too. You know, I've been doing this a long time. Never heard anybody say, I work for a perfectionistic boss and I love it. (laughs) You know, just listening to you reminds me of Jim Rohn's quote that in order to get more, you've got to become more. And so, you know, one of the very first habit that you mentioned is you said that women are often guilty of making the assumption that their accomplishments speak for themselves. I can tell you as, as a man, I made that very same mistake. I always believed that extraordinary performance would be noticed and extraordinary performance would be recognized. And I really came to discover that what I lacked was sort of a political expertise in keeping people informed and making sure that people fully understood what it was that I was doing and how I was doing it, et cetera. So I wonder if you have any advice for all of us in terms of how to most effectively keep our bosses and bosses, bosses, that next level, aware of our progress and achievement? Well, first of all, I'm not surprised you say this. And it gives me an opportunity to stress something I think is very, very important. These 12 behaviors that we're writing about here, I don't view them as women's behaviors. I view them as human behaviors that men and women often share. They are just the behaviors that are most likely to get in the way of women as they seek to rise. I've heard many men say that they exhibit this behavior as well. And so I'm not identifying it as a female behavior, but it seems to create, based on their experiences and based on the structure of the workplace, particular problems for women. But I think the most effective way to move beyond that is to treat what you're doing as valuable information that people, particularly people who are in a position of authority over you, can benefit by knowing And that takes it out of, you know, people who aren't good at bringing attention to what they do, they usually will take one of two attitudes, either like, and I hear these all the time, well, if I have to behave like that jerk down the hall, I'd rather not be noticed. So they set up a kind of dichotomy in either or situation that's impossible. Either you're totally obnoxious or you keep your mouth shut. Neither of those is particularly effective. Uh, The other thing is, you know, that idea, well, I believe if I do good work, people should notice. Well, perhaps in a perfect world, they would. Mm -hmm. But we're in a very, very busy world. And people are often not focused on what other people are doing. So I think that the best way to do that is really to treat it as information that can be valuable to other people and that you're trying to be transparent about and help them understand what you're contributing because that's going to add value to their job and to, you know, how they understand your organization or your unit is connecting in the marketplace, et cetera. So I think that sort of depersonalizing it that way can take you a long way. Well, I want to go back just a second to what you just said and commend you because in reading your book, I really had the sense 
that you weren't just speaking to women. You're speaking and saying what I took from it was just what you articulated, which is that these are just all human behaviors and we all do them. But some of these habits are seen more often in women and some other ones are seen more often in men. Is that really what you're saying? And I think that creates an openness for all of us to listen to this. I agree with that. And I think of this sometimes as the behaviors that get in people's way that got left out of Marshall's original book, What Got You Here? So that they are human behaviors. But certainly, as I said, more frequently are they culprits in holding women back. Well, to finish up earlier, I asked you, you know, what are the habits that consistently limit women leaders? What do you think are the the habits that tend to make leaders most successful? What would be the top three there? Women leaders the most successful? We'll go back to men in a minute, but yes, women women leaders. Okay. Well, I think that definitely the habits that make women most successful, and there's plenty of research on this, is first of all, their ability to build strong relationships and capacity to engage and motivate people based on that capacity. So that real deep attention to building relationships. I think that also the clarity and frequency and comfort with a lot of direct communication. Again, we see research that shows that, but I think that's, you know, I identified that back in when I did the female advantage and I still see women benefiting a lot from that. And also that capacity to put yourself in the center of things rather than at the top and move with some flexibility into different positions, depending on what your team or your unit is doing. And I want to say something that's really fascinating to me. And this is one of the things that's kept me going over these decades, is that all of these characteristics that I identified back then of women's leadership at its best have become much more recognized as mainstream leadership capacities as the not just the demographics, but the technology and the nature of the economy have changed. And the engagement of people and their full hearts and minds has become more important in a knowledge economy. So I I think that that's one of the things that's been really fascinating. And I really took note when Laszlo Bach, who was the you know, head of talent development at Google, and they did their big algorithmic study of who was successful at Google and found to their shock, it was not the most brilliant engineers, but it was the people who had these very characteristics we're talking about now, capacity to build close relationships, to motivate others, to communicate directly and clearly, but in, you know, in an ongoing communication, not somebody with a sign on their desk that says, be brief, be brilliant and be gone, you know, and also was able to be flexible in terms of leading sometimes and then other times stepping back and seeing yourself in a support role. Well, just to pin it down for the men who are listening, what are the three habits that limit them most consistently? Well, I would have to go back because that's not something that I necessarily have researched, but I'd have to go back to Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, and the conversations I've had with him. What he would say would be the behaviors that are most likely to get in their way are you know, self-centeredness, making it all about me transactional basis of a lot of the relationships they have and not really investing that kind of emotional energy in relationships that's going to really engage and motivate people. And then also an inability to apologize, be vulnerable, and admit when they are wrong, all of which go together. So I would say drawing from his work and what got you here and the conversations we've had, I would identify those. So to spin the final question related to this, I want you to think about men leaders today, not historically. Yes. And tell me, what are the three strengths that very successful leaders have today? Well, I think it's changing tremendously. I I think, you know, I've heard like uh, General William Pagonis talk about that the most uh, successful uh, leaders on the general staff in the U.S. Army and the capabilities that they're training for are empathy and the ability to understand other people's motivations and sources of engagement. And I agree with that, you know, very, very strongly. 
And Alan Mulally, who's a great hero of mine as a leader who is the CEO of Boeing and then Ford Motor Company, talks so much about the ability as a leader, your role is to really let other people exhibit their skills without having ever to be the smartest person in the room because you're there coordinating their efforts and they're going to be the smartest people in the world. So uh, with Alan Mulally, I mean, one of the things he talks about that's most important for a leader today is humility, especially, you know, again, in Drucker knowledge economy where, you know, you don't know as much as all the subject matter expertise people in the room are. So I think we're changing. We're in a time when the definition of what makes a great leader is really evolving. And this is not consistent across the board by any means. But I think that that's one of the trends of the last 20 or 30 years that we've seen. You know, when I started writing The Female Advantage, Fortune magazine was still running a cover story every year, America's toughest boss. And it was someone who today would be considered abusive, you know, sort of lionizing him as a great heroic emblem of leadership. And we've just changed. And the expectations of men and women in leadership positions are different than they were. And I would suggest that they're far more humane and, uh, you know, and, and that humility and the ability to listen are, are all much more important than they were in the past, much more recognized. I mean, that's really fantastic insight. And you mentioned the military and, you know, we think of hard nosed, you know, rugged guys kind of a thing in the military. But what I've come to realize through an experience that a very good friend of mine just had, his son went into the Marine Corps and went through the officer's training program and failed it within the first week. Mm -hmm. And he was really determined to get into the Marine Corps as an officer. And you would think in a typical military world, it's like, well, that's on you. So if you want to succeed and get back in here, you're going to have to go do it yourself. Instead, one of the officers involved with the program reached out to him and said, hey, I'm going to tell you what you didn't do well. I'm going to coach you so that you can improve those so that when you come back, if you want to come back, you'll succeed. And so they worked in this partnership. And then, of course, he went and reemerged and succeeded. And now he's an officer (laughs) in the Marine Corps. And that's all heart. You know, that is completely aligned to what you just described to me. And, you know, they call it a brotherhood. And now, obviously, sisterhood with more women going into the military. But the idea and the broadest sense of it is that we're all connected and need to look out for each other. And I think that spins leadership in a very different direction. I completely agree with that. One of the great privileges of the work that I've done over the last 30 years has been many, many opportunities to work with different branches of the U.S. military. In fact, the first letter I got, hard mail, back then on the female advantage was from General Perry Smith, who was then leading the National War College in Stone Mountain, Georgia, talking about how this is the leadership model of the future. And ever since then, I have been just heartened and moved by the extent to which our military leaders really enshrine a very different model of leadership than has been true in the past. And I think there are certain sectors of the private sector that could learn a lot from the humility, courage, discipline, and empathy and coaching practices that we see in the U.S. military. Well, once again, your clairvoyance, you're bridging where I want to go, which is to one of the things that you guys wrote in your book is that Marshall has conducted like tens of thousands of 360 feedback diagnostics over the years. And this is his words. He he says that the collective feedback shows that women leaders are consistently more effective than men, which is sort of a controversial idea in itself, really. And of course, this isn't obviously true for all women, but it's nonetheless surprising. So what have you both found to be the reasons that women earn higher ratings as leaders and what can men and women managers learn from it? Well, I think it's some of the, I mean, I know, uh, you know, from having seen that research that it's many of the things we've been talking about, more attentiveness to relationships, a more capacious ability to read what might motivate or engage different individuals, greater humility and being able to reach out to them, greater empathic skills, which 
we're now seeing our extremely important uh, leadership capability. And I think that's one of the most important lessons we've had you know, from neuroscience is how effective empathy really is in generating high performance. And also the willingness to let other people shine as opposed to feeling like you have to be the one who's always in the, you know, plastering your image all over everything and taking credit for whatever gets done. So those are the kinds of when we look down into that research, that's what we see. And and I believe that people perceive women as being more effective to the extent that they do, because women are ahead of the curve in enshrining the leadership capabilities that are more suited to a highly diverse knowledge economy that is globally interconnected. So I think that that's where that comes from and that those are the reasons that that those perceptions are out there. So if I'm a male leader and I kind of hear what you're saying and I have an association that some of the things that you're describing have a softness to it. Yeah. Um, so how do you convince me that you need to evolve to really be more human in that respect? But also, how do I do it? How do I grow those skills? <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's another question. So if I'm trying to work with a, a male leader on that, and the issue is that he feels a vulnerability in not being the smartest guy in the room, you know, I mean, he, there are all kinds of things he can do. I would, you know, recommend that he do a shadow study of a male leader who is highly effective and known for his interpersonal skills that he read, you know, he read Alan's book about about how he brought what he did at Boeing to Ford and see somebody who's a really, really extraordinary uh, leader, uh, you know, do that in action. I think that part of the issue is that there is a perception that indulging, if you were, these soft skills is going to be bad for the bottom line and that won't reconcile with what the bottom line is. And I think part of this, at least in our own country, I can only speak uh, here to the U.S., but it, it operates differently in different cultures. In some cultures, it operates very similarly, is that that there's a structural drive to demonstrate extreme short-term profit. And when you have that, when that's what you're being driven by the market to prove, that makes it very hard to put the human investment into building a deeply effective and engaged workforce. And that's the very, very tough conundrum that we deal with now. And that if we can migrate that to more, you know, the, the, the organizations that have been able to do it have been able to do it often because they find themselves in a monopoly position. So they're not as sensitive to short-term or quarterly results. But I think that if we look at leadership as the ability to build a resilient institution or organization that is going to thrive over time, rather than just that, you know, get while the getting's good and get out idea of, you know, let's blow out the profit for this quarter and then, you know, take all we can and move someplace else. I think, you know, if you've got that kind of approach to what you're doing financially, you're always going to be skeptical and you're not really going to buy into this other way of leading because your objectives are different. Well, other than a 360, mm -hmm. which kind of gives you you know, a complete diagnosis. So I'm a leader and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, well, I wonder what, what my limitations are. What are the yeah. three things holding me back? <laughs> How do I find those out? What are some ways for me to discover them? And you may have a, an insight on your own, you know, you get some feedback, but how do you really confirm it? And how do you, how do you get the cold, hard facts from people? <laughs> you get them from other people. That's the key. I mean, that's what I see. I see that that is the most effective thing in coaching. It's not just about you and the coach. It's about the coach helping you get information about how you lead, how you manage, how you communicate, how you relate to the people that you work with. And that that is really the key. So I think, you know, the, the best way to begin to go about 
getting the information you need to become a better leader is going to be to ask people who are around you all the time. Ask members of your team. Ask your direct reports. And do it in a way, I mean, it's tough because they go, oh, boss, you're fat, you know, you're the best, you're the best, etc. That's not what you want to hear. You want to make clear. I am seeking to get better at, you know, I think I may have room to improve in these three areas. So don't just leave them hanging out there like, oh, you know, what do you think of me? No, I think I may have room to improve in these three areas. I've had a little feedback on that. Do you have any thoughts? Have you watched me in a situation where you thought I could have handled something more effectively? I'm trying to get better at that. And, you know, that's really how Marshall's coaching has worked its magic for many years is getting people to ask those questions, getting people to ask those questions at home as well. Because, you know, the people who see you, the people who know you, they're the ones who really have that information about how you you can get better. And this requires a level, a willingness to make yourself vulnerable. And it requires a strong measure of humility and courage to be able to do this. But this is the most effective way known to humankind to make improvements. And then, by the way, when someone, say you ask someone, say you say, you know, I've had some feedback that when I'm in meetings, you know, people don't always recognize that I'm really valuing what their contributions are. Maybe I jump in too quickly or maybe I summarize it for myself or for other people in a way that makes them not feel heard. Do you have any suggestions, you know, going forward for that? And then when somebody says something, don't critique it. Don't you know, say, oh, but the reason I did that was, you know, don't comment on it. Don't evaluate it. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't, you know, just say thank you. You don't have to use it. You might disagree with it. You don't need to say you agree or disagree. You just say thank you. You know, that other person put themselves out there to give you help. So making those requests, identifying, you know, who are the people who could be helpful, making sure that your requests are very, very, very specific, not general, so they're kind of left deer in the headlights, and then just thanking, not commenting, uh, and letting it all stew together. You know, you'll begin to, patterns will emerge, and you'll begin to recognize ways in which you can start to make tremendous improvements as a leader. It's absolutely stunning summary. And, you know, I, in listening to it, I had a methodology for doing this in my career where it just maps over to what you were describing. I asked people to tell me one great thing about me, like what's the best thing about my leadership, which was a complete setup for the next question. (laughs) But, you know, oh, you are the greatest. I mean, that's what you get from that question. But then you say, well, tell me just one thing all the years we've been working together that you've observed that I could improve. Just one thing. And they go, oh, you know, you're just fantastic, Mark. I can't come up with anything. And they go, no, you gave me something wonderful. So now give me something that I could really work on. And then it's a punch in the stomach is what comes. Um, They have been thinking about this for a very long time. It's a pain point. And so you have to kind of wince and accept it and say thank you and then accumulate the list and then go to work on that list. But what I found was not only to your point about personal growth, but when you make those improvements, because those people told you that this is what you need to work on, when they see you make those improvements, it creates a greater and deeper connection because it's like greater trust and greater respect. Like he took what I said to heart and went and fixed it. And so there's just a massive win-win here for doing this. Huge win-win. Also, people notice because, you know, I mean, that's one of the things. In organizations, we all get a reputation. Oh, he doesn't have time for anybody. Oh, you know, he cuts you off before you can get five words out of your mouth. Whatever it is, we get these reputations. They may even be obsolete. They may have been based on our behavior five years ago, but people don't necessarily notice when we're changing. But if we're engaging people as allies in helping us change, then they tend to notice because we're advertising it. So we're not only altering our behaviors, we're also altering perception, which is so important in in an organization. Totally agree. 
One of the things you said about, you know, making improvements, you guys made this point very, very clear, is in my scenario, now I've got a list of all my direct reports and they've given me, you know, 20 years worth of self-improvement right, that exactly. I need to make. So, but you say, don't go to work on the whole list. You say, identify what the common denominator is and fix that first. So explain why. Start with one thing and not one big thing. Start with one small thing. I'm thinking of a woman I worked with recently. And one of the things that came in in her feedback as she solicited it was, you know, sometimes when you're speaking in a meeting or you come up with an idea, we can't follow the thread. There's too much information. There are too many words. You know, it would be probably helpful if you could be more concise. So what she decided to do, and this really worked, was not, you know, like starting tomorrow, I'm going to become a concise person. But, you know, in this one team meeting, I'm in three times a month where I did get that feedback a number of times. I am going to work in advance to become more concise. I'm going to ask other people to give me feedback, say, you know, I'm really going to be working to be more concise in this meeting. Would you tell me how I do? Would you tell me if you have any suggestions? Or if there's somebody that you know who you think is is very concise and clear in their communication, say, you know, what are one or two things you do to be so prepared that you're able to convey lots of important information in such a digestible form? So just in that one meeting, I'm going to start practicing being concise and crisp and clear in my communication. And then once you're comfortable with that, that you'll start to get comfortable with that in a range of situations, as opposed to just trying the whole thing at once. It's much more, you know, it's how it works. It's like why when you diet and you decide, well, I'm not going to have a cookie with my tea, it's ultimately more effective than, well, starting tomorrow, I'm going to go on a strict detox diet. And then, you know, you fall off of it and you're right back where you were. Completely agree. Want to transition now. If you've listened in to any of our previous podcasts, mm -hmm. Sally, you know that we like to ask our guests a few short answer questions that pack a whole lot of insight. And so we call this the heartbeat round and the questions come quickly and we want you to answer them in a heartbeat. So you ready to go? You game? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Here we go. Your favorite place for a vacation? Lake Michigan in the summer, where I grew up, south of France, anytime. The newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? Financial Times. One skill men generally do really well that women leaders should master? Leveraging relationships. That is creating reciprocity where you help one another to mutual advantage. And one skill women generally do really well that male leaders should master? Cultivate personal relationships based on some degree of intimate verbal exchange. The book that changed your life? Really, I think the book that most influenced my work, which changed my life, was Carol Gilligan's book, In a Different Voice, published in 1982, which was about how women reason and make moral decisions and why it was different than how men did things. That book opened up the whole field of studying, you know, men and women's similarities and differences, rather than just using men as a template for everything. It was a brilliant book. It was hugely influential. And if that book hadn't been written, I wouldn't have developed the work that I did. The leader from any time in history, male or female, that you most admire? Well, I'm going to have to go for history now and name Francis Hesselbein, who is the leader both Marshall and I dedicated this book to, who has run a number of nonprofits and whom Peter Drucker cited as somebody who could have easily run General Motors or the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I think her leadership style exemplifies everything we've been talking about today. And it's been my privilege to know her for many years, to write about her, and a number of years ago to attend her 100th birthday party at the Rainbow Room. I mean, interestingly, she was the CEO of the Girl Scouts of America, right? She was, and she did an extraordinary job. And she is 
Frances is a genius at getting people to do things for her. And she was able to engage Peter Drucker, gave her, I think, two weeks of his time every single year, helping her with leadership issues, and also uh, got Marshall early on. So she really knows how to engage people to help and make it worth their while, which is a great leadership characteristic. Besides love, what does the world need more of? Listening. Quality that derails the most leadership careers. Uh, I would say obdurate (laughs) self-regard. Skill improvement you are working on right now. Listening. The trait you admire most in other people. Generosity. And I've really seen it in action in working over the last two years with Marshall Goldsmith, who is one of the most remarkably generous human beings I've ever known. The lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. I just wish that I had had more confidence in what I had to contribute and not backed off whenever I got any sort of skepticism. And and that's something that I have, have devoted many years to trying to teach younger women to have as well. Bravo. Great answer. And the last one is, what's the best coaching advice you can give to other coaches? is to what we discussed earlier, help clients enlist other people, the people they work with every day, the people who see them, to give them perspective on what will help them grow rather than just limiting it to a a formalized 360. There's a lot of richness there and creating those kinds of networks is quite extraordinary. Well, thank you. We slowed the heart down a lot on this, but your answers were fantastic. So thank you. I have saved one last question for you, as is our tradition with our guests. And it's really more about turning over the floor to you and giving you an opportunity to make some parting words. But since you've been coaching leaders for most of your professional career and have a keen insight into what both enables and limits their effectiveness, what final advice do you have for helping both male and female managers discover and eliminate the habits and bad behaviors that hold them back from their career success that they really desire? I think it's really important to let go of past models of leadership and past ideas of what worked in your organization and in the world in general. Things are changing so rapidly in our world technologically. And the workforce is becoming so much more diverse that I think we're really on a frontier here reinventing what superb leadership will look like. But ironically, there there's some really strong connections to what the greatest leadership has always looked like, which has always been characterized by uh, courage, humility, and discipline. Thank you so very much. I think that's a wonderful way to conclude this. And I'm staring at your book, How Women Rise. I know it's been a bestseller already. I wish you phenomenal success and continued success with your career. And I thank you so much for coming on. You were just a, a magnificent guest. Thank you, Mark. It's been very enjoyable. In closing, I'd like to note that this is our 10th podcast episode since we kicked things off in April. And I really want to thank my 10 incredible guests who've come on to support me in my launch. And I'd also love to hear from you. I welcome any and all feedback that you have on this podcast, any ways we can improve it, make it better. And I'd also love to connect with you otherwise. So you can find me on Twitter where I'm at Mark C. Crowley. And I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And frankly, you can find all my articles and all ways of connecting to me on my website, markccrowley.com. And I'd also finally like to invite you to check out my book, Lead from the Heart. It's on Amazon.com and any bookstore, obviously, but where Amazon raters, 226 of them so far, have given an average score of 4.9 out of 5. And it's now being taught in seven American universities, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And I want to thank my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, and site manager, Randy Yant. And as always, please remember, when you leave from the heart, your people will follow. Until next time, this is Mark C. Crowley signing off.